But uh, let, let, let's just kind of dive in. We do our kind of scouting of, of the teams that the Knicks play. Let's just talk Nets and Bucks. Um, the Nets are the first opponent coming up. The Nets are interesting. I, I kind of I don't know if I have a lot to say about the Nets, but a few things to say about the Nets. I've been trying to watch them recently, and they haven't been amazing recently, but they were really good earlier in the season, I would say, especially offensively. I think they're better than their record. Um, I just want to say the Nets have Lonnie Walker, Dorian Finney-Smith, Royce O'Neal, Cam Johnson, Cam Thomas. Those guys are all shooting the lights out, and everybody who listens to Hot Hand Theory knows I love me some three-point shooting. Um, those guys are all shooting ridiculous percentages from three. The Nets are sixth in the NBA in three-point frequency, third in the entire NBA in three-point shooting accuracy, shooting 39% as a team, which is crazy. Um, <clears throat> so I, I I really appreciate the style that the Nets are playing with. They have all of these wings uh, who, who can all shoot and score, and they're taking advantage of that to create great spacing. Dinwiddie creates a ton of those threes for them. He runs a bunch of pick and rolls. He runs a bunch of isos. And they really have just like three guys who touch it a lot. It's Dinwiddie, um, Cam Thomas, and um, and uh, Mikhail Bridges. Those are the kind of three that really touch the ball primarily. The rest of the guys are all spacing out and shooting. 11th offensive in the, offense in the league. I think they have a bit of a higher ceiling just based on the shooting. They've kind of been on a slide offensively lately. But I, I really like watching the Nets because they're playing a style that I really appreciate. Take a bunch of threes and make a bunch of threes. Um, and then the only other thing I wanted to mention about the Nets uh, on, on the other end is, uh, can someone explain how they found Dayron Sharp while already having Nick Claxton? Like, I, 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 I don't, is that fair? Like, I, I don't understand. Dayron Sharp has been incredible defensively. Um, is a monster on the boards, uh, you know, maybe not quite as good as a rim protector as Nick Claxton, but it is very effective there as well. Just ridiculous that they have those two guys in the, as their center rotation. But I, I think the Nets are dangerous, and I don't think it's a walk in the park to play against them for anybody because they can shoot the lights out, and we know that's subject to high variance. If all those guys hit a bunch of threes, they're beating any team in the NBA. And I think they have a decent defensive ceiling as well, besides the fact that all the wings and guards that I mentioned are not the best defenders besides Mikhail. Um, Cam Johnson hasn't been as good as he's been in the past. Royce O'Neal hasn't been as good as he's been in the past. DFS, who should be a really good defender, hasn't been as good as he's been in the past. Cam Thomas is a is a turnstile completely, and, and Dinwiddie is a bad defender as well. So, But I, I think that they have a higher ceiling than what we've, how we've seen them perform, and I think that they're a dangerous team for anybody on any given night. Yeah, I look when you when you have a volatile um, strategy in terms of shooting a ton of threes, you can beat anybody on a night because you can get hot on any night. I know that's pretty simplistic analysis, but the the Nets, similar to the Knicks, have two centers that they're going to keep on the court at all times, and they're just going to surround them with shooters. Um, the sharp thing is very very interesting to me. Uh, he's one of uh, excuse me, he's he's plus 10 per 100 when he's on the court. By far the best on the Nets. They're absolutely crushing teams when he plays. Uh, obviously, they're losing when he sits. It's not like the Nets are some super team. If, if they were if they were plus 10 per 100 when he played and also winning the minutes he sat, they'd be one of the best teams in the league. Um, EPM loves a couple of Nets players, Bridges, uh, Dinwiddie, and Claxton. It's too bad Mitchell Robinson's out. That Claxton-Mitchell Robinson matchup is always a lot of fun. Um, 
look, I don't want to do what I did last week with Taylor Horton Tucker and deride somebody and then watch him as he <laughs> goes off on the Knicks. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to do that to the Knicks again, but I have to say I've, I've never really been the biggest Cam Thomas fan. And to me, he represents what we were talking about earlier in terms of points probably get overrated. Like, and that's all he does. He provides very, very little impact outside of the points he puts in the basket. And when he's scoring, that means other players who might be doing other things either aren't on the court or either aren't scoring either. Um, EPM hates Cam Thomas. So I guess this is my way of saying bet Cam Thomas is overs Wednesday night. Um, but I do think that the best version of this Nets team has Dinwiddie carrying a high usage and then a couple wings who are willing shooters playing off him with Claxton or Sharp down low. The thing that always troubles the Knicks specifically is when a team doesn't have somebody that you can ignore. Tom Thibodeau plays a very exploitative style of defense. He is at his best when he can take away another team's best player using help and recover schemes. And the Nets, at least right now, don't really have that option. Of course, neither Claxton nor Sharp is much of a shooting option, but Thibodeau doesn't really ignore big men just because they don't shoot. He's too afraid of offensive rebounds and of baskets around the rim. And aside from those guys, the Nets are pretty much always going to be deploying guys who are willing shooters. I expect the Dennis Smith Jr. minutes to be the ones the Knicks can attack, not because Smith Jr. isn't a good player, but specifically Thibodeau will look to help off of him and be willing to live with Dennis Smith Jr., you know, shooting open threes. And the Knicks will be at the mercy of the volatility of those threes. I'm more curious about the Nets long-term to, 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 to move away from uh, this matchup specifically and talk more like, I don't really know what direction they're headed in. And I'm curious what you think of that, because aside from Macau bridges, they don't really seem married to any particular player. I don't think the Knicks are, we, we talked about this guy earlier. I don't think the Knicks are going to be in the Donovan Mitchell sweepstakes does it just feel inevitable that Mitchell ends up in Brooklyn? That 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 has to be the most likely outcome, right? Donovan Mitchell is a perfect fit in Brooklyn, in my opinion. Um, I think he works seamlessly with Mikel Bridges, um, is obviously a better creator than anybody that they have on the team. I mean, Spencer Dinwiddie has looked like an offensive star on very low uh, efficiency. And that's because there's so much space on the court when all those guys are spacing out. Like they they play at the four, Dorian Finney-Smith, who is shooting. Um, last time I checked, 44% from three this year on on high volume. Um, the 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 spacing's incredible on that team, and they have guys who can attack the basket ferociously at the five, um, who are either going to get offensive rebounds or are going to dive or are going to be in the dunker spot and be able to fill space when Dorian Finney-Smith gets. I mean, Dorian Finney-Smith when um, Spencer Dinwiddie gets into the paint. So if 
Spencer Dinwiddie is able to look as he's looked on, again, low efficiency, not a threat from three, really, like a sketchy shooter, um, can be hot, run hot or cold. If he's able to be as good as he's been, as effective as he's been as a creator, imagine what Donovan Mitchell would do with this kind of surrounding squad. I, I don't know what they would have to give up to get him, but I think that's the perfect fit. And I think that that would make this Nets team very dangerous moving forward. I, I also think that Nick Claxton is. I'm not sure if I'm if I if I would go as far as to say this, but Dayron Sharp may be making Nick Nick Claxton expendable. Um, and Sharp played. You know, he hasn't up until this season. He hasn't been healthy, and so we haven't really got to see what he has. I mean, last year I think he played 50 games or something like that. The year before, I know he played 32 of 82 games. Um, He's been kind of up and down, but this year we're seeing him put it all together. He's 22 years old. I I think he's a good player. I think he's really good, and I think that we could see Nick Claxton become expendable. So that I don't know what his value would be as a five, you know, a really good, strong defensive five who has a good impact on the offensive end due to his efficiency and his ability to get offensive rebounds and attack the basket. But I'm not sure if he has value, but to me, their future is Bridges, and a guy like Donovan Mitchell and the wings that they have around around him, you know, as as defensive wings and as shooters, I think that that's a really good team. If they can hold on to Cam Johnson, they can hold on to Mikel Bridges, um, potentially hold on to to DFS, and um, you know, one of their centers and a guy like Donovan Mitchell, I think that's a really good team. So, I, I to me, I think this Nets team actually has a really good upside. Well, if they're going to trade for Mitchell, they have to trade something. Um, I'm not sure yeah. what they would trade. I'm not sure what they would trade, but it would. But I think they will also have a lot of leverage. Like if Cleveland gets to the point where they're like, "Oh shit, we're not keeping Mitchell," you have to imagine they'd at least feel out the market. Um, and I do think Mitchell wants to ultimately be in New York. My guess is, idea he wants to be a Nick, but I don't know if the feeling's super mutual. I think with Brunson, the Knicks would be correctly, by the way, um, a little weary about pairing Mitchell with Brunson because there's a lot of redundancy in the strengths and weaknesses. So I, I, I think Brooklyn's going to end up the overwhelming favorite. And I have to agree with you that if you, you know, just start with the core of Mitchell Bridges and Cam Johnson, that's, that's going to be really good. If you have Mitchell Bridges, Cam Johnson, and, a center that's producing like Claxton or Sharp, that's going to be really good. And I think, you know, I, I should have mentioned this earlier, and I'll be curious to hear what you think about this. You know, as impactful as Gobert was with Mitchell, something that my uh, my brother talked about all the time is that there's an interconnectivity between um, the impact that two guys like that can make and – an example he often used, he used two examples, the 2001 Sixers and the 2011 Bulls. And if you were to look at the analytics of both of those teams, you know, Allen Iverson won MVP, Derrick Rose won MVP in 2011, and Iverson won in 2001. But if you look at the analytics, you know, most stat junkies would say, well, they actually won because of defense. And Rose and Iverson were not the strongest defenders on either of those teams. Um, they were both top seeds because they had the best defenses in the league. 
But my brother would always argue that, well, these defenders are allowed to be the, are allowed to be their most impactful, the, the most impactful versions of themselves because there's an elite scorer who can carry a super high usage and drag an offense to even mediocrity that allows flawed defensive heavy players to be the best versions of themselves. So, you know, as much credit as I do want to give, you know, go bear for those jazz teams. And even as much as the data can tell us that, Hey, you know, the jazz did fine when go bear played and Mitchell didn't, I think in the macro sense, you have to give Mitchell at least a little bit of credit for taking for, 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 not allowing Gobert's offensive weaknesses to have a bigger light shown on them. Because if they had a worse offensive creator as their best player, I think all of a sudden Gobert might have some more responsibilities and he might hurt the team more. And to bring this back to the Nets and their potential, you know, bringing Mitchell on board, Claxton is a very limited offensive player. He can pretty much only dunk and, you know, he has a little baby hook with his left hand, but you don't want him doing more outside of that. And he has a very high defensive ceiling. If all of a sudden you bring a guy like Donovan Mitchell in, he's going to allow Claxton to be the best version of himself because he takes all of those responsibilities away from flawed offensive players. So I think that we could see the Nets take a big leap forward if they were able to get Mitchell and not give up too much. I totally agree with that uh, analysis and evaluation. I I totally agree. I think that, it's almost like you have a flaw. It, it, I mean, it, it makes sense. You just you have a flawed defensive player and an incredible offensive player, and then you have a flawed offensive player and an incredible defensive player. Like you think those two might go well together. <laughs> like I think, and, 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 but it's even like you explained. Like it's it's not just that their flaws that they cover up for each other's flaws that they allow each other's strengths to blossom as well. Like it's 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 there's space, right? It's. Um, it's almost like when you do sound engineering or something like that, and you, um, are doing sound mixing, there's frequencies that, that you have to blend with one another. So in order to have, um, you know, the lows be able to shine through of the kick drum, you have to like, make sure that the lows of the other instruments are kind of reduced. So you can, you can pull down those frequencies on those other instrumental sounds, and you can let the lows from those, the the sounds that you really want the lows from the kicks, the bass drums, you can let those really shine through. And it's necessary to have that push and pull, that dynamic where, you know, you drop the lows on one and you and you are able to let the lows shine through on those others. And that's necessary or else everything's going to get really muddy. And that's the synergistic effect that you're kind of describing, I think, in a basketball game as well. So you you, kind of almost have to have that in order to have guys really maximize their strengths on either end. And so I really like when teams are built that way. And also, like, I, I mean... Yeah. Can, can I just can I just that? get yeah, in here? For sure. I'm sure. sorry. I just I just want to say, it works the other way too. Like if Mitchell's a flawed defensive player, having someone who doesn't force him, who who, who doesn't amplify, you know, maybe Mitchell's not the best example because I know people like his defense when he's locked in, but it, over the totality of a season, he's never been super impactful. But if you have an offense heavy defense uh, defense light player having a guy like Gobert or Claxton or Mitchell Robinson who can disallow the opponent from amplifying those deficiencies, that is equally impactful. And I do think we have to emphasize both equally. It's not just the offensive player who's helping bring elevate the defensive player. It, it works vice versa too. 
Yep. Yeah, I I one hundred percent agree with that. It works both ways, and I I think it just I think it's really it really works, and I think it's a great way to build a team. So, in 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 essence, I I would totally agree with you. I think it's a great dynamic to have um, with either Claxton or Sharp and Mitchell, but then the fact that the wings are all really good defenders that the Nets have. And even if they have to give a couple of them up, they still have other ones that are going to be really good. So I think the Nets, <clears throat> I think if the Nets, you know, are able to give up picks and and kind of some of the ancillary wings that are high value wings, honestly, at the same, I know a lot of people like Cam Johnson, even if they gave up Cam Johnson and the picks and another pretty high value player, I think that that would still be a great Nets team with Donovan Mitchell just because of the synergistic effects that we're talking about. So I think that that's a, a great future for them if they're able to, to to pull that off. And to to flip it on its head or to, to look at the other side, the Cavs are, the Cavs have to get what they can for Mitchell. If they lose Mitchell for nothing, they're going to take a pretty big step back. If they got Cam Johnson and picks and all of a sudden they're running Garland, Struess, Cam Johnson, uh, Mobley taking a step forward in Allen. I actually don't think they'd take a big, as big a step back as people uh, would predict. I think they'd be just fine. I, I don't think the ceiling for this Cavs team is super high anyways. So I think they'd maintain close to a similar ceiling and just as high a floor because they'd still have a bunch of really good players in their lineup that fit together really well. They'd have shooting, they'd have defense, they'd have initiate like Garland is, it, it would allow Garland to take a step forward in a similar way that Maxi has without Harden. So it wouldn't surprise me if a Cavs Nets trade ends up being one of those that helps both teams um, move forward. I think that's a great point. Um, Garland has had a, a relatively down year so far. And I, I also could see that same leap forward from him, uh, you know, in the absence of Mitchell, um, kind of surrounded by more ancillary pieces who are going to shoot and play defense. You know, a guy like Cam Johnson, I think would work really well for that dynamic. I, I'm always going to say this, but you know, I don't think the Mobley Allen thing is, is I think the Mobley Allen thing puts a hard, a really hard ceiling on the team. I just don't think that's ever going to work like long-term, but that's my personal philosophy. So I, I, I could be disproven on that obviously, but I don't think that that's a long-term solution. Mobley has to just become a better shooter. If he's going to play more power forward, it's, in today's NBA, it's just an untenable uh, situation. He has to he has to be able to shoot. So I agree with you. I also think the the offense defense thing we were talking about is a great way to lead into the Bucks. I mean, if you're a Knicks fan listening to this, you know what the story is with the Bucks. We've played them. Ugh, the Knicks have played them three times um, already. Or wait, have they played them three or four times? Three, yeah, three times already. Um, Three, it's four, number four and five coming up. <laughs> it's insane. Um, and I, I don't think there's a more perfect marriage of offense and defense than Damian Lillard and Giannis Antetokounmpo. Um, I think that's as synergistic as two superstars can be, unless it involves Steph Curry. And I think the Bucks are finally starting to round into form and playing really, really well on both sides of the ball. I think the Knicks are in for just, they're going to have their hands full, even though they'll be at home. I, I don't expect it to be. Um, I don't easy is the wrong word, 
But I think both games in Milwaukee, I look, I know the Knicks ended up getting killed in Milwaukee when that game, when the Knicks or when the Bucks hit a million threes, I don't think that's reflective of who the Bucks are. I think that was just an outlier level shooting night. But I think when you watch both of those games, it would be easy to watch and be like, you know, like the Knicks are actually on this team's level. And I don't think it'll be that if, if the Bucks are healthy and playing in New York. I think the Knicks are going to have their hands full. I think they're going to have to play really well to beat the Bucks. Um, what do you think? I think the Knicks are going to get uh, uh, swept across two games. I And I hate to say it, but <clears throat> the Bucks are are just, you know, and you talked about the, the synergy between offense and defense. They are on offense, the powerhouse that we thought they'd be coming into the season. Like they are shaping up to be that. And we had talked about them, uh, you know, before the Knicks in-season tournament game. And I did not expect the Knicks to win that game because the Bucks offense was already showing signs of being just too potent. Then since that game, they've absolutely dominated their opponents, like completely crushed everybody on the offensive end, um, besides Indiana, ironically, which is, is it's kind of funny, but um, put up 145 uh, points per 100 possessions against the Knicks, which is ridiculous. Um, like I said, the aforementioned Indiana, they played, you know, okay, 114 per 100 then 122 per 100 against Chicago, 128 per 100 against Indiana again, 144 against um, per 100 against Detroit, and 128 per 100 against Houston. Just completely steamrolling everyone on the offensive end. The effective field goal percentages have been off the charts. Damian Lillard is shaping up. You know he is. You know on a really very much a linear trajectory with with regard to his offensive impact <clears throat> excuse me uh, with regard to his offensive impact and he has been really incredible over the last like 10 games or so I don't have his specific stat line over those 10 games but I know he's been awesome and and their defense is is, is holding it down their defense is doing enough their defense hasn't been great but obviously you have Giannis and Brooke Lopez you're gonna have a solid defense and they've been doing enough but offensively they've just been a complete juggernaut and I despite again despite the games being at home for the Knicks I just think that that's going to be extremely tough over the last two weeks the Bucks have the second best offense in the NBA 130 points per 100 possessions um, only behind the LA Clippers and they also have the fifth best point differential plus 11 over those over those uh, two weeks so yeah I just think this is a juggernaut this is a juggernaut this is the the team that we were worried about and to be honest with you I think that they're getting better I think that their offense is kind of like locked in but I think their defense is going to get better and has room to increase I think Dame Lillard has room to improve in terms of his offensive impact we saw last year we had one of the best offensive impact seasons in the history of the game you know in the top maybe 20 or 30 something like that um so yeah this is this is a juggernaut i think that they're gonna be a problem for literally anyone including the boston celtics including the 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 sixers or including any the, including minnesota who um has a great defense like i just think this is this is this is a monster yeah i i'm still out or not out i'm still not fully sold that there'll be a problem for boston i have to see it i i think boston is I think this is the best, the biggest edge the best team has had on the league since the Warriors. I just think the Celtics are so much better than everybody else. And it's going to take an injury or 
crazy volatile shooting luck to to beat them because or or uh, lack of luck on the Celtics end because they rely on the three a lot. Um, I think that, and I know I'm going to get back to the Bucks here, but I just think the Celtics are a perfect team and they're perfectly uh, synergetic. I I just cannot cannot be higher on them. I I think you could make an argument that they should have at least three All Stars right now um, from an impact perspective. And it's funny. I think they might get three, but I think Jalen Brown might be one of the three. That's uh, ridiculous. Would... I don't 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 get me started on Jalen Brown being the third guy of that squad. Anyway, go ahead, proceed. Yeah, I, I <laughs> you're good. Um, <laughs> I think. Uh, you know, if you listen to this weekly, you might remember me saying last week that I, I think that Anthony Davis is the key to the Lakers because I, I trust LeBron's impact to be so consistent and so reliable that it actually is going to be Anthony Davis and how good he plays and how consistent his impact it is that determines the ceiling. In a weird way for the Bucks, I think their X factor is Chris Middleton. I know that he's playing limited minutes right now as he continues to try to um, get healthy and come back from his injury. He's been really, really good in limited minutes. His impact has been really high, and the minutes that they've played with him on the court have been great. I think Lillard and, and Giannis are going to be Lillard and Giannis pretty much no matter what. I think save some some three-point luck swings from Brook Lopez. Brook Lopez's defense and what he does is going to be consistent no matter what. If the Bucs are going to contend with Boston, I think Middleton has to be the key. I think that if Middleton can be the player he was even two seasons ago before he got hurt, and he can be that great third banana, and more importantly, a second option behind Damian Lillard. I know that sounds crazy to say because Giannis is Giannis, but I still think that when the game gets tight, you just don't want Giannis initiating from the top of the key. I don't think that that is a good proposition for a team. I think you want Giannis being, you know, playing with an advantage and Lillard can create that advantage. And there was a time when Middleton could too, when defenses were bent and Middleton was getting the screen from Giannis. That was a great duo. And if Middleton can get back to that, I would be more open to saying I think the Bucs could give the Celtics a series. Yeah, I I mean you kinda you kinda pulled the words out of my brain. Uh I, I, I do think it comes down to Middleton as well for, for this Bucks team as well in terms of whether they're able to compete. I, I will say I, I largely agree with you on the Celtics. Everyone knows I love the Celtics. I love the, how they've constructed that team. Um, especially on offense, but on defense is something that you pointed out before the season started about how the defensive end would, would kind of make or break what the ceiling of the team would be and their defense has lived up to the, the kind of the best that you could have expected for them. Um, I do think the Celtics have a, a, a higher ceiling. Um, I think this is the year for the Bucks, is because they're all in this year. Like, Dame is 34, Middleton's working his way back, he's 32, he's like an old 32, like everybody on that team is in their 30s, everybody who plays minutes in, on that team is like in their 30s, besides like Malik Be- Beasley, who's who's not the youngest guy either, um, I think they're all in on this year, and they, I mean, we're seeing it, we're seeing Giannis play the most minutes per game that he's played in like the last like seven years or something like that, and, and also not missing any games, I think he might have missed one game, 
Um, and I think they're also saving Middleton. I really think they're saving Middleton for for later in the season, and they're 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 wor- letting him work his way back slowly. So, I just think they haven't really shifted into the high gear yet. I think we're seeing the Celtics kind of humming along and being what they're gonna be, but I think the Bucks have a level to get to that they haven't that we haven't even seen yet, um, especially when Middleton is back and actually playing. 33 minutes per game at his highest level. I mean, offensively, he's been tremendous so far, and I, I don't think he's all the way back yet. So, and, and again, like I said, I think Dame has has upwards momentum to go. I think Giannis is really kind of carrying them early on in the season, and I just think I just think that we have they ha- they have more more room to go, and I think this is the year for them to to kind of make that push. I think Boston has a higher ceiling, but I just I I I think that the the Bucks are going to be a problem for everyone and anyone is that's kind of where I'm at with it. One uh one other player to mention is Malik Beasley, who's playing good defense and shooting 46% from 3 on six and a half threes a yeah. game. Yeah. Um he he matters. And to sort of put a bow on this and I just want to mention the PVP data. So the Bucks with Giannis on the court and neither Damian Lillard nor Chris Middleton on the court beating teams by 14 points per hundred possessions. Giannis is still really good and can do a lot. Now flip that and you have Damian Lillard without Middleton or Giannis. The Bucks are losing those minutes by almost a point per hundred possessions. So that's a 14 point differential. But, and here's the big but here. Put Chris Middleton on the court next to Damian Lillard and take Giannis off. And the Bucks net rating is plus 14 or plus 13.92 per hundred possessions, almost exactly equivalent to what they're doing with Giannis on the court without the other two. So Damian Lillard's a great player, but he's not Giannis on an Akumpo. And if they can get to a point where once they start rotating and they're substituting in a game and they're two uh, outside of the starting lineup, their two main units are Giannis with bench players and then Lillard plus Middleton and bench players, they're going to be humming at all points in the game. They're they're going to be really good for 48 straight minutes. They're going to have a lot of good players playing. So again, this is all to back up the point that Middleton is just going to be everything to this team, and they need him to be playing at his best self. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And and the last thing I just want to say is that I I, I I've seen some of that data about Dame. This is kind of my point. Dame, according to EPM in terms of his impact, this is his worst offensive season in 10 years. This is his worst offensive season since he's been 24 years old. We have not seen (laughs) the Damian Lillard that we're going to see later in the season. We just haven't. And honestly, I mean, I'm going to come back on Hot Hand Theory, maybe episode, you know, 21. And I'm going to have to clip this clip and, and reinsert it back into the episode because Dame is going to be playing at an astronomical level later in the season. And it is going to seem like, how do we think that anybody can stop this Bucks team? Because this Dame is like, oh, yeah, that's Dame. Yeah, he's pretty good. Yeah, he's really good. Wow, he's really impactful. Yeah, oh, that guy's dangerous. This is not Damian Lillard of the, that we've seen over the last 10 years, which has been one of the best offensive players in the history of basketball. And I think he's going to get back to it. And when he does, I don't know how you stop this team. So that that's why I think that they have such an incredible ceiling. So for anyone out there, if you want to keep receipts right now, Lillard's offensive EPM is plus 4.1. So, you know, 
if you want to track that and make fun of XJ when Damian Lillard gets worse because he's falling off a cliff, please, <laughs> please be, feel free to do that. <laughs> uh, yes, please do that. I would love, I lo- would love if you kept the receipts and, and, and spanned my inbox about it. Um, but yeah, I, I that, everybody, that, everybody knows how high I am on receipt culture. I love that so much. I, I hate when people like evolve their, their way of thinking and, are, are closed-minded i i hate that or are, are open-minded excuse me this is that. i'm gonna write this down another topic receipt culture are different uh perspectives on it because this 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 needs to be unpacked it, it just does um so fucking <laughs> infuriating dude i was on i was on the post game last night and some dude like was just literally blowing second time this week by the way that i've just been harassed by some random person that i've never met some dude was blowing up our chat with like, why are you saying these good things about Randall? You hate Randall. He doesn't try. And it's yeah. like, I don't understand. I don't understand what you want from me. Like when Randall's out there playing bad, should I just be like, oh, like I'm just not going to say anything. Stop observing it. Stop yeah, observing stop. and reporting what you're seeing. Don't do that Tox- anymore. <laughs> toxic negativity. You cannot do that. You can only be positive about the NBA team you root for, folks. Yep. Yep. That's the toxic positivity you should say, but yeah, to- totally. No, I'm saying in my case, it was, I Oh, was in your case is neg- toxic. Yeah. Negative. I'm, I'm the toxic <laughs> neg- negative Nancy. Um, on that, on that note, on that toxic note, we will end uh, the hot hit theory podcast. This was a great episode. We got to talk about a lot. Um, glad that you are with us. Please leave a like, uh, you know, please subscribe to the podcast. Um, for more stuff, we're going to, we're going to, we have a lot more coming. Um, future episodes are going to be tremendous. We have some guests coming up, some surprise special guests and, um, a lot more to talk about, about, about the kinds of analytics talk and, and, and film talk that Jeff brings to the table. So super happy that you're with us for it. Like, and subscribe. Um, yeah, this has been hot hand theory.